Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Hey everyone, Richard Diaz here. It's a beautiful Friday morning here in Southern California. Got a great show for you today. How to run faster while avoiding injury. If you've been a runner, you're doing OCR, getting yourself jacked up, you want to listen to this show. Before we get started, I want to have a little shout out to all of those that are going to Temecula, California for the Spartan Race Weekend. I got some folks coming in this morning to the secret lab to have some testing done, some gate work done. They're on their way down there. Horatio and crew coming down from the Bay Area. A lot of guests coming from out of town the last couple of weeks had Fernando Casanova came to me from Mexico City representing Mexico and Meg Ramirez came to me from Dallas, Texas. And tomorrow I got somebody coming from Oregon all over the map. And uh, her name is Tiffany and just love having you guys drop in to see me, get the work done. Anyway, let's not waste any more time. Let's get on with the show. So here we go. I want to get on to the topic at hand, which is the trick to running faster. I call it a trick because it's so elusive. It seems like everybody toys with all these theories on what it is that you need to do or not do in order to get faster as a runner. Well, I'm going to share some insights that uh, I've been throwing down over the past uh, 20 years, and uh, I think they're unique and a little different than is typical. And I think that if you're interested in the art of running, you should be fascinated by what I'm going to say next. And we have a guest. As I put this out to the world just yesterday, looking for a topic for this show today, I reached out to Facebook, and I got some people that offered up some really cool questions in respect to what we should discuss. Getting faster was the primary concern. And so, with no further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Lori Danko. Laurie, good Hi. morning. How are good you? morning. How are you? Say hello to all your friends out there. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> You're famous. Uh, yeah, I, some, I don't know how that happened, but sure. <laughs> well, you know what? Andy Warhol said everybody gets 15 minutes. Exactly. I'll take it. <laughs> I'm going to give you 50. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all, all right. Not. So, Laurie, you, you sent me uh, a pretty uh, involved bio about uh, who you are, what you've been doing, and uh, I I don't know that I want to share it all. I'm going to let you suggest, uh, if you could, like, kind of run it down for folks, just kind of give them a sense of who you are and the reason why you reached out to me, and we'll pick it up from there. Okay. um, So, in a nutshell, I'm, let's see, I'm 45 now. Um, I started running about 20 years ago. Um, just for exercise, and I really never even wore a watch. I just kind of uh, mapped out my four-mile trail and ran. Um, But I did it really religiously. I was about six days a week and um, for years and years. But I had several things happen where it 
took me out of uh, even just going for a morning jog. So um, some physical problems and, you know, went through a divorce and depression. Um, yeah, all that fun stuff. But I just recently got back into it. I had a, um, a friend of mine who is my trainer at the gym asked me to do a Spartan race. And so we signed up for the Tampa Spartan Sprint, which was last February. And after I did the race, I guess I kind of got hooked, like, uh, like a lot of people. Um, and I've never, you know, done the competitive thing. I don't run the elite heats. I just kind of run with everyone else and do the best I can. But I'm starting to realize that I'm feeling a little bit competitive now um, after I placed first in my age group at a race over the summer. So I really was just, you know, looking for some input, some suggestions how to get faster, if there are ways to, you know, improve because if I can if I can win awards, I would love to. Okay, cool. Here's the thing. Uh, well, I got a couple questions. First okay. of all, in the course of your trying to achieve speed, what is it that you do in your training to try to find your speed? Um, well, I finally invested in, you know, a GPS watch, which um, is helping me track just, I guess all I really have been looking at is, you know, the minutes, how many, how fast I can run a mile. I just check certain things, but I'm pretty slow. Um, so I, I really have just been trying to go out and just to improve each time. Um, if I run my four miles, I just try to make sure that I cut a couple minutes off of it. If you know, each time if I can, it doesn't happen all the time, but I figure I'm making progress. Okay, so so if I just can kind of broad stroke that a bit, what you're suggesting is that you you push a little harder each time, hoping that it's going to cause you to run faster. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, is there any workouts that you do that are specific? to achieving speed other than just running that four miles? Um, you know, the workouts I do are, are pretty intense. I'm at the gym about, I'm there six days a week, and we do a lot of cross-training, boxing. Um, so I think some of the, the sprints that we do, uh, we do work on sprints and um, a lot of, we talk about, you know, explosiveness and in our box jumps, things like that, but as far as, you know, the actual running part, I'd say just more the, more the sprints that we do, um, my, that my trainer has me do. Okay. All right, so let me, let me just go ahead and attack this right now. First of all, I've spent a long time working at trying to unravel this, this whole concept of achieving speed. And my day-to-day -day business is working with athletes and people like yourself that are uh, one of two things, interested in, in uh, reducing the amount of injuries that they're facing when they train and or improving their finish times. And I actually, beyond just endurance athletes, I also work with sprinters. I work with guys that are, you know, trying to make their way to the NFL, um, NBA, various power sports. So we do a lot of uh, high-intensity 
high-speed work uh, on a treadmill that is capable of achieving 28 miles per hour with up to a 28% incline. Wow. I actually have guys jump onto a moving belt that is traveling upwards of 25, 26 miles per hour, and this is what we do when we speak of intervals. And that's, of course, uh, only to achieve an event that may be, uh, you know, shorter than 60 yards. Uh, baseball players okay. I work with, their, their number is 60 yards. And uh, football, you know, for combines and such, they're 40 meters or 40 yards. So any point in between from someone trying to sprint to someone trying to achieve an ultra marathon at a quicker pace. And I just got through reading a pretty extensive uh, explanation of speed development on Facebook by a coach that I've been familiar with. And across the board, across the board, all the coaches I've met, all the people that talk about the type of workouts they create in order to cause runners to run faster, I, I tend to find that, that they, they overlook one of the most critical ingredients to achieving speed. And what that ingredient is, is simply this. You have to focus primarily, initially, at improving the way you run as opposed to how hard you attempt your run. For example, if you and your friends were to get together and say, we're going to go do a track workout, and somebody busts out, you know, their little um, three-by-five cards where they have their workouts played out, and they say, we're going to run a 400, we're going to run an 800, we're going to do this much recovery, we're going to try to get the runs done in this X amount of time, we're going to do it at 5K pace, we're going to do it at 10K pace. All these different ambiguous approaches to training are completely missing the point. Because if every time you approach your run, you do so with a, a buttload of corruptions in the way you're moving through space, you're very unlikely to achieve any significant differences in your performances. Now, anything that, that, that doesn't kill you will ultimately make you stronger. That, that's the initial precept, right? So you could continue to beat yourself, and then through adaptation of these beatings, you may be able to achieve a little bit more work here and there. And then there's the thing that I call the phenomenon of initial values. The, the worse shape you're in, the greater improvements you're likely to see. But you're going to get to this place in life where there's a plateau, where eking out a, a little bit of a difference becomes more and more difficult because you're achieving this, this plateau in your performances relative to your physicality. You've dropped the body fat, so it's no longer a function of strength-to-weight ratio. And then it becomes just a matter of whether you're efficient or not. Okay. So having said that, I like to look at three things. And obviously enough, energy costs is a paramount concern the longer the event is that you participate in. You run out of gas trying to do a 13- or 14-mile event or a marathon, that becomes a big problem if you're not giving concern to your metabolic efficiency. But before you even consider that, you have to take into account what I refer to as the mechanical threshold. You know, there's this metabolic threshold, which is your anaerobic threshold or your lactate threshold, whatever you want to coin it to be. But there's also what I like to call this mechanical threshold. So to explain that a little bit more uh, clearly for you, if you were to begin running, and I taught you how to run with, with what I consider to be perfect form, 
In other words, you're not doing anything to disrupt your, your forward progress in your kinematics. You're putting your joints in the right places. You're aligning yourself in such a way that everything is akin to developing forward progress. And then I said, okay, now that we got this wired, I want you to start running. Well, you're going to find that at the lesser speeds, it's going to be pretty easy to maintain or achieve these efficiencies that I've taught you. But there's going to come a point as you increase your speed where you're going to run into this wall. There's going to be a corruption that occurs when you try to push yourself beyond what you're physically capable of doing with good form. So things basically start falling apart. And where you see this a lot is all of the, the finished photographs for most people that run their first 10K, half marathon, whatever it might be, when they're running across the line, you see that their leg is well extended ahead of their body, their arms and their torso is all contorted and twisted because all they're thinking about is getting across that line as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And everything has gone wrong. And the longer you are in that state of corruption, the more expensive the work goes. Are you still with me? Yes. Okay, I just I get that. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I thought my mic cut out, so I just wanted to be careful. I was I was good. Okay. All right. So, the thing we need to do initially is ground zero. We've got to identify what it is mechanically we're trying to achieve when we run. Mm-hmm. The number one concern for any runner is the posture that you're in and whether you are making contact under center of mass when you're running. If you are able to look down and see your foot ahead of you, regardless of where it is, how far ahead of your body it is, you're overstriding. And by doing that, by doing that, you're imposing a braking force. And this is a force that needs to be overcome. And as a matter of fact, while I'm on that point, I want to touch on a question that someone uh, shot up when I when I initially asked this uh, this question of you is what you know what what you guys want to hear about, and I got a comment from Casey Jindra, who is a Spartan racer, and she said, "Can we talk about hip stability? Because mm-hmm. people complaining that they have problems with their hips, they're unstable." All right, so. Now, if you try to imagine this, and I'm going to try to create this visual picture over audio. If you were to stand up right now and balance on one foot, your stability is going to relate to how long you can effectively stay in that position without having to set the other foot down. And then you could add some, uh, some challenges by maybe putting your hands over your head, maybe rotating your torso, or maybe trying to touch your toe, whatever. But the, the degree of stability that you can create is relative to how long you could stand on that one foot beneath you. Mm-hmm. And then if you were to keep your feet under your hips and then extend one of your feet, say, 12 inches ahead of your body and try to balance on that foot without leaning forward and posting your body over that foot, it's impossible to do. It's impossible to do. The only way you're going to be able to support your body weight over one foot when it's a a foot ahead of your body in the initial position is by shifting your weight forward. The only reason you can do it while you're running is because you have momentum. But from the time that your foot makes contact with the ground ahead of your body to the time that your body becomes above your foot 
you're unstable. So hip instability is generally a function of repetitive stress when your foot is in contact with the ground ahead of your body. So when you start finding your hips breaking down, dollars to donuts, you're overstriding. Well, that would be me. <laughs> okay, so here's okay. where I'm going with it. So this is, this is something to think about. And I'm telling you, I, I never hear any, and it really kind of uh, uh, perplexes me, I never hear anybody rant about correcting your running form before you concern yourself with how quickly you can move. That's like walking into a karate studio and say, look, I've always wanted to be a black belt. Can you just <laughs> give me the black belt and let me start there? Uh-huh. And, you know, and I don't know if you've ever taken a, a martial arts class before, but it all starts out really, really methodically and very, very slow and painstakingly detail-oriented. Yeah, you, that makes sense. You, you punch very, very slowly, and you're being critically critiqued to make sure that everything that you do is precise before you concern yourself with how much quicker you can make these movements. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, this is something that I'm very familiar with. Uh, there's a lot of black belts in my family. My, my brother is a, like a seventh-degree black belt. He's been mm. teaching martial arts for, uh, geez, uh, 40 years. Wow. And, and he's at a place in his life where, you know, at the age of 56 years old, he's blazing fast when he punches or kicks or, or the moves he does because mm-hmm. he's developed this trait and he practices his trait over and over and over painstakingly. I did an interview with Leo Manzano, who was a silver medalist in the London Olympics. I used to call him the rainmaker because we had never won an event at that distance at the Olympics since 1968. Never, not forget when, we never been podium since 1968. And he finally brought it, brought it together. And the thing that Leo told me that he attributes his ability to do that was that he's extremely detail-oriented with his running form. If he finds any kind of a flaw in the way he's moving as he's getting around the track, he immediately stops, dissects what the problem was, and goes to work on correcting it before he starts to proceed with his workout. Mm-hmm. I never see people do that unless right. they're under my tutelage where I'm actually training them to make these corrections. Right, because um, the normal person like myself wouldn't know what they were doing wrong. Well, that's, very, that's a very good point. So there's great argument to seek out a coach that understands proper mechanics mm-hmm. and how to teach. So let's talk about a little bit. Of the, I'm going to talk about the corruptions, then I'm going to tra- talk about some of the solutions. So there's a lot to be said for, or there has been a lot said in regard to running off your midfoot as opposed to heel striking. You hear this all the time. It's, you know, ever since Chris McDougall wrote his book, uh, Born to Run, you know, there was, there was this, it was on fire for, it seemed like, about five or six years. Everybody was shifting out of the real heavy-soled heels, getting into these Vibram five fingers, running barefoot. Everybody just kind of went nuts about trying to correct the way they're running, getting back to natural running. As a matter of fact, my show, the Natural Running Network, it's kind of a, uh, a derivative of that whole process from back in those days. But um, at the end of the day, what I've learned, again, you have to realize how geeky I am. I sit there and watch people run all day long, every day, every day, every day for years. If you look at my phone or my iPad under my photos, 
all you see is legs. <laughs> there's no picture of anybody's head. There's feet, there's knees, there's ankles, there's, but there's no headshots because I'm videoing people while they're running. And what I've learned is that it almost doesn't matter whether you're landing on your heel, your midfoot, your forefoot, as long as that contact point is beneath your center of mass. The devil in the details is overstriding. The further ahead of your body you stick your foot, the greater the braking force you impose, the higher up in the air you have to travel in order to overcome this length that you have set out ahead of yourself, the longer your foot will be in contact with the ground, which is in opposition of gravity. All of these things start to weigh on you. The, the vertical bounce up and down is costly because, you know, obviously enough, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. If you're bouncing up in the air five, six, seven inches and coming down five, six, seven inches, that's a tremendous amount of waste relative to your forward progress. And, you know, in, in my lab, I actually measure this vertical oscillation, it's called, this bounce, where I, I can, with my software, I can determine how much waste you create going up and coming down. And what I find very, tip, what I find very typically is about five inches up, five inches down, which is 10 inches lost to forward progress every stride. Now try to take yourself to the track and think in terms of what I just discussed. If you try to go to speed and, you, and your notion of speed is to try to grab more ground ahead of you and try to pull it past you, the only way that's going to occur is if you jump higher in the air, which means more wasted space, more braking force. And the, mm -hmm. the faster you run, the greater the imposition of braking force that's opposing you. So it's disruptive. Mm -hmm. So that's clearly the very first thing you need to focus on correcting, is making okay. sure that you're making contact beneath you. The, the polar opposite error in that is people that have drank the Kool-Aid and heard that overstriding is a big problem, and so people tell them to take shorter steps and try to keep their feet beneath them. Well, clearly, if you take shorter and shorter steps, odds are your feet will land much closer beneath you. However, that's a very expensive proposition, too. Very difficult to get to speed by cranking up your cadence. And if you crank your cadence up to a particular point, it becomes extremely metabolically deficient. It costs way too much energy, and it's really, really hard to go to speed that way. So I don't have an issue with stride length. As a matter of fact, I encourage great stride length. But the stride must open up behind you. And it will if you follow the appropriate guidance to increasing your stride length with good motor skills. Okay. So understriding, overstriding, where you're positioning your foot as you're running is a critical component of your ability to get to speed. And then the next thing that I, I like to talk about, it, and I, I brought it up briefly, is posture. If you're bent over at the waist, if you're leaning backwards, if your chin is pointing up towards the sky or you're looking down at the track beneath you, head down, head up, bent at the waist, all of these postures are very disruptive and they tend to break your force production. And so you want to make sure that your posture is correct. And now... This is kind of interesting if you think about it because I haven't said anything about how many times around the track you should travel, how many workouts a week you should do, 
Because mm-hmm. until you learn to adapt an appropriate running style, everything you do is going to be pretty much like beating your head against the wall. Yeah. And I see it all the time. And, you know, and I'm going to share this with you. It's kind of off point, but it, it kind of resonates with what I'm trying to tell you. I was at the combine watching these elites compete. And I'm standing with Isaiah Vidal, nice guy, great athlete. He goes through the uh, spear throw. Now, spear throw is technique. It has nothing to do with how strong you are, how metabolically efficient you are, what your mechanical aptitude is. It's a skill thing, and you have to practice it. Mm-hmm. And he's going to kill me for telling you this, but you know, everybody's going to, they're going to hear his trick, okay? So here's what happens. Try to imagine you're standing, and you're getting ready to hurl the spear. And you need to hurl a lot of spears in a minute. So you got like 25 spears to throw. The idea is to see how many times you can hit the target, make the, the spear stick in the target, mm-hmm. and so on and yeah, so forth. Yeah, I did. I watched that, yeah. Okay. So Isaiah looks at me, and he goes, you know, he goes, they're missing it. And I said, well, what are they doing wrong? He said, watch them. They throw the spear, and they sit there and stare to admire their work before they, re- before they reach for another spear. So try to imagine uh-huh. you threw the spear, and you're looking to see whether you hit the target, whether it sticks, whether you missed, before you reach for another spear. He said, the minute that spear leaves your hands, there's nothing else you can do about that spear. Uh-huh. It's either going to hit the target or it's not. It's time to reach for another spear. They wasted time. And we figured out that between each spear toss, they probably wasted a second, between a second to a second and a half, admiring their work as the spear travels through space, misses, hits the target before they pick up another one. So realize that you got 25 spears to throw. So you're looking at about 25 seconds, and the drill was a one-minute, how many uh, spears can you throw? How many times can you hit the target? So he doesn't look at the spear after it's left his hand. And the reason I I bring this to light is because the correlation with identifying that there is technique that that supersedes effort. Mm -hmm. It's a a really critical component of the whole process of running and most anything. You have to nail technique. Okay, so getting back to this postural issues and learning to run properly, the other end of it, and this is kind of something that's been tossed around a lot, and this is another question somebody asked me. Cadence. Now, I'm really a strong supporter of using a metronome while you're training, while you're trying to learn to run with good form. Mm-hmm. And scientifically, we've found that 180 strides per minute is optimal for most people. And uh, you know, it comes into play that if you're you know, six foot nine or four foot five, maybe 180 strides per minute would not be optimal for, for you as an efficiency right. person. But I can tell you that I sat here on my computer and watched when Galen Rupp set the American record last year for the indoor five kilometers. And I set my metronome to his running gait, and he was dead on 180 strides per minute as he was running sub five minute pace the whole way. Wow. We're talking about running in the neighborhood of about a four thirty pace all the way around this track for, you know, what it, whatever it works out to being. I think it's uh, 12 times around the track and he was dead on 180 strides per minute. And uh, aside from being and incidentally, every time he made contact with the ground, his foot was dead beneath his center of mass. 
So how can he achieve that? The only way that you can achieve 180 strides per minute at that pace is your stride has to open up significantly behind you. Okay. Extremely broad stride, covering a lot of distance with each step, dead on 180 strides per minute. But the more critical component of all of this regard where that is concerned is that you create what I refer to as bilateral equivalence. It's an extremely important thing that both feet are doing the same thing. The amount of load you take on with each leg is equivalent to the opposing leg. Hmm. And the reason I tell you that is that whenever you've had a friend complain to you about an injury that's occurred from running, mm -hmm. it's always on one leg or the other. They don't mm -hmm. come up to you and say, I blew out both my knees yesterday <laughs> running. Right. Right? Uh-huh. So what they're suggesting to you is that they were dominant on one side of their body, which imposed too much load, which eventually caused them to break down wherever they might have brought broke down, whether it be a shin splint, the hip problem, the knee problem, hamstring pull, whatever it might be, it always occurs on one leg. And so if you were to square up and cause both legs to share the load equally when you run, you're going to find that the loading pattern throughout your body becomes more uniform. You're now running most likely with shared load between your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your glutes, your calf, your, your tibialis, the, the spring loading, that you're, the eccentric energy you're getting out of your Achilles and your plantar fascia. All this stuff is working together, which reduces the overall load on your body and starts to relate to more metabolic efficiency. It's going to cost you less to work than it did before. Mm -hmm. Getting back to you a little bit and some of the issues that you uh, laid out for me about you, you had mentioned that it's extremely important that you become metabolically efficient because you're incapable of feeding as well as many of the people you race with. Mm -hmm. So if you're not able to get that energy back, then you better get really good at sparing the energy you have, right? Right, yeah. And so aside from concerning yourself with training aerobically or train, you know, uh, pushing your anaerobic threshold, things like this, which obviously are important, you also need to really lower the cost of work. And I'm going to give you another stupid analogy because I can, okay? Have you ever played racquetball? Yes. Have you ever played racquetball with someone that's really, really good? Yes. <laughs> and so, like, they're putting the ball... Uh, a half an inch off the floor, into the corner, bang, kill, kill, the, kill the ball. Or they decide to play with you and have you run around like a chicken with your head cut off while they're walking and placing the ball and walking and placing the ball and walking and placing the ball and beating you to death. Yeah. They're not sweating. You're dying. Yep. Right? Well, yep. that's, what you, that's what you need to be able to aspire to when you run. You have to really get to a place where your mechanical efficiency is such that it lowers the cost of work. It becomes a left-handed complement to your metabolic efficiency. When you get better at the way you move, the cost of work is greatly reduced. So you need to work smarter, not harder. Bingo. Okay. And, and it's like I, I, it, it, it cracks me up, to be honest with you. I'm at the track every week, have been at the track every week for years. And I've seen some really good, really accomplished runners at the track. 
And I'm talking about some old school guys that, I mean, when you watch them running, they're running fast. And, you know, they've been running for a long, long time. And I'm looking at them and going, man, they could be so much faster. I mean, I don't interrupt them and I don't say, look, I could help you. I don't get involved in their their world. They've got to come to me if they want my help. But the point is, is that I'm watching the corruptions and the way they're moving, and I know that there could be so much more that comes of their work if they were just to slow down and start to improve upon the way they move through space. Yeah. But they're always running as they always ran, and they'll always do what they've always done. Right. <clears throat> you eventually get to this place where getting faster is just not going to happen unless something mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. And change doesn't mean do more work. Or do less work. It means do smarter work. Mm-hmm. Because how much, how much load you can take on is really a function of how strong you are. Everybody's got a break point. And uh, typically when I talk to marathon runners, especially novice runners, they identify where they tend to break down. I might be 40, 50 miles into a week before my threshold uh, for for strength breaks down. I can't sustain more than that. If I lost 20 pounds, I could probably go to 60 miles a week. If I got stronger, I might go to 60 miles a week. But everything given equal, there's a ba- basically a point where I can no longer go more volume before things go badly. And mm-hmm. so these are the types of things that uh, running mechanics really have huge implication over. So let me let me just kind of give you the workout now, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can rant all day about this, but I'm, I'm just going to give you the workout, <laughs> and I'm going to offer you. I'm going to offer you this too. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm talking too much here. But <laughs> here's what I want you to do. When we're done with the show, sometime in the next few days, I want you to have somebody video you running with their phone, your phone. Okay. I want a side shot, a panoramic view of you running. Now, mind you, you've got to be close enough in the camera so I can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. But don't, you know, don't fill up the camera. I mean, just nice panoramic shot, about 15 seconds long. Okay. And then I want you to run towards the camera. And then, you know, just run straight at the person that's filming you. And then, you know, just kind of go past them. And then I want you to run away from the camera. So okay. basically three shots, one from the side, one from the front, one from the back, 15 seconds each. I'm going to put it into my software. I'm going to analyze where you're moving, and I'm going to show you what you're doing that you need to correct. Okay? And then we'll get together on the phone, and then I'll talk to you about what kind of corrections you need to make. Okay. That's amazing. I'm going to do do that for you, okay? Now, so let's talk about the workout. You get to the track or wherever it is. uh, I prefer that it's a stretch of road or track that the environment is not imposing on you. I don't want a downhill. I don't want an uphill. I want flat response. I want a road that you, you can replicate your efforts. And then what I want you to do is I want you to, once you learn what you're trying to achieve with your running style, I want you to start working up to speed. I want you to have a metronome in your ear. Now, you can download a metronome onto your iPhone or whatever phone you use. Mm-hmm. And um, you could have it just like in your pocket, audibly letting you know what, you know, setting a beat for you. Set it to 180 strides per minute and then uh, begin running. Stay as close to that 180 strides per minute as you possibly can and start building your pace. 
until you get to a place where you identify that something's starting to go wrong, this mechanical threshold I spoke of. Mm-hmm. If you start to stick your leg ahead of your body, you blew it. If your arms are swinging across your body crazily, you blew it. If you are all up in your heels, you blew it. If you're running on your two toes, you blew it. If your posture starts to bend over forward or backwards, you blew it. So the game is to get to speed as, as quickly as possible. Excuse me. I don't mean like get up to speed as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. but get to as quick a speed as possible before this mechanical corruption comes on and then back off completely. I'm assuming you're wearing a heart rate monitor? Yes. Okay. I want you to recover all the way down to 120 beats per minute before you produce the work again. Okay. Your intervals are going to be governed by the recovery heart rate. I don't want you to worry about the heart rate at the top end. Do you collect your data onto some software so you can look at it yeah. later? Perfect. Yeah. So what you're going to find is that with GPS and with heart rate, you are going to see at the top end of each of these intervals that you create a specific speed. So okay. assuming that you have the ability to do it, incidentally, if you don't, I would highly recommend you upload your data to Training Peaks because mm-hmm. it, le- it lets you do this. But Okay. What I want you to do is you hover over the peak. You know, you'll see these jagged up and down uh, trends on the, on the chart. Hover over the top of the peak and see how fast it was. Hover over the top of the heart rate peak and see what the heart rate was at the top end. Take a look at how much time it took you to get from the top end of the peak speed to the bottom end of your heart rate. Hmm. Excuse me. Okay. Top end heart rate, low end heart rate. I want to know how long it took you to recover between intervals. Okay. And the governor, the governor being 120 beats per minute. In the beginning, you're going to falter sooner than later. Because as you get better, you're going to be able to get up to greater and greater speeds before the corruption sets in. As soon as you get to speed, you recover. You don't try to sustain it for 20, 30, 40 seconds. You get up to speed and com- completely recover. Okay. So what this is going to do is it's going to start to, to improve your mechanical efficiency. I'm not talking about sustained speed. That's a whole other thing. And that takes on other complexions of metabolic efficiency, which are an all, uh, another thing we need to worry about. But the, before we start worrying about how long you could support speed, the first we need, thing we need to do is find speed with efficiency. Because when you start finding speed with efficiency, you're going to find that you could support the speed for greater lengths of time. Mm-hmm. That comes next. Okay. I'm not going to tell you it's not important. I'm just telling you it's not next. It's not right away. It's it's the next thing right. you do. Right. So let's 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 say that let's kind of fast forward. Let's say that you dedicate 45 minutes to this type of workout twice a week. Twice a week, you're going to get up to speed, recover, get up to speed, recover, get up to speed, recover. And what, you're, you're not going to worry about how fast you were moving. You're not going to look at it, you know, at you know, how much time transpired. You're not going to concern yourself with any of that. You're just going to, it's a perceptive effort. When you've identified that things start to go wrong, when you've, when you've identified that your heart rate was low enough for you to repeat again, that's all I want you to concern yourself with at the track, and then try to put it on for 45 minutes. Okay. And then you look at, and then after the fact, you look to see how you're doing. And three weeks deep, what you're going to notice is that you're going to start achieving greater and greater speeds, and the recovery times are going to improve. Okay. 
So if it took you two minutes to get back to 120 at the end of the uh, uh, interval, you might find that after uh, a series of these workouts that that timeline would be reduced by about half. Wow. So what we're talking about now is mechanical efficiency. Things are starting to get better. It doesn't cost you as much as it used to to get up to speed. Okay. Now we're going to start extending the amount of time that we, we are at speed. So sustainable speeds are not going to be the same as these high-intensity peak speed velocities. So, for example, if you got up to 14 miles per hour at the peak of one of these efforts, and on average it was 14 miles per hour, if you're going to try to sustain it for 15 seconds, you won't be able to do that. So maybe what will happen is you'll get down to like 12 miles per hour, but you sustain it for 10 seconds. And then same thing, you recover to 120. And then eventually you start shoring up the bottom end of the recoveries. So instead of going to 120, maybe you go to 140. And then you'll start noticing that you could sustain greater lengths of speed with good economy, good efficiency. And then, you know, there's going to come a time when you start getting into these, um, these interval repeats that are more metabolically structured, where you start concerning yourself with how long you stayed above threshold, how much time you needed to recover below threshold, and you undulate back and forth like that. Incidentally, this is all laid out in my book. The uh, other okay. thing I'm going to do for you is I'm, I'm going to have uh, my wife, she's going to send you a, uh, a PDF copy of my book so oh, that you, so you'll have a script to play from. And there's Thank templates. You. Yeah, there's templates in the book that will kind of show you how to align this work over time. In, in essence, what we're doing here, uh, this is kind of interesting because uh, I've been trying to get Alberto Salazar on my show for the longest time, and he's, he's reluctant. He's been, he's been fighting me. <laughs> But uh, in Outside Magazine, Alberto Salazar put up what he called the 10 Golden Rules of Running. And I'm not going to go through and explain all 10 of these uh, precepts, but I'm going to give you two of them that really resonated with me. Number eight, this is Alberto Salazar. This is the coach of Galen Rupp, who is now holding the American record for the 5 and 10K, incidentally. One of the, probably going to set a record, world record in the marathon, I, I would predict. But here's what he said, number eight, perfect your form. Every motion your body makes should propel you directly forward. If your arms are crossing or you are overstriding, you're losing force. Your posture should be straight and your striding foot should land directly underneath you. Have you heard this before? Yeah. Now, I, I, I don't know whether it was, I, I'm older than him. So I'm going to guess that, that I came up with it first. We'll go with that, yeah. Yeah, but I love to hear that he, that, he, that he sees this as being something that is a critical element of the ability to get to speed. Uh -huh. And incidentally, I saw Salazar, and if you, if you go to FlowTrack and you, you Google it, you could probably pull up the video clip of Galen Rupp running around the track for this 5K record. Uh -huh. And you'll see on the side of the track Salazar motioning him to drop his chin, and he's motioning him to get his arms moving. Hmm. Your arm swing is, is, I call it the rudder of the ship. If your arms are crossing your body, you can expect that your feet are going to uh, counteract your, what your arms are doing. Okay. So, in other words, if you throw your left arm across to the right side of your body, your right leg will cross over the center line to the left side of your body to counterbalance to try to create this balance, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you're going to end up on the outside edge of your foot, 
And then that's a slow train to uh, disrupting knee problems. Mm-hmm. Number 10, embrace technology. If you don't have enough knowledge behind what you're doing, you're not going to run well or you're going to injure yourself. With the Internet, GPS, phones, advanced heart rate monitors, and even your iPod, you can now be coached individually even while you run. He says, I have an anti-gravity treadmill in my garage. Uh, Use the knowledge and tools that are out there. So here's a guy that's, you know, set a world record back in the early 80s. I think it was the Chicago Marathon. He's been in it for a long, long time at a very, very elite stature. And what he's saying, in essence, is that the most critical things you can do is, number one, identify what it is you are doing by tracking the, the, the information. People that tell me they run for feel, oh, I don't use heart rate because I know my body, uh, all the, I, this is just the way I run. So, you, you know, I mean, it, that, that's just lazy. Honestly, it's just lazy. Yeah. If, you're trying, if you're trying to achieve great performances, what I'm talking about is not earth-shattering information. This is really simple stuff. I have people that come to me all the time, and very quickly I help them to correct the way they move through space, and they immediately begin to run better. Wow. And so running better, to me, does not necessarily mean immediately running faster. You know, their perception it might be that, oh, you know, I don't feel like I'm running faster, but it feels smoother. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what smooth means? The smooth means that the cost is less. Right. You're not, it's not expensive to do what you're doing anymore. Then it becomes a function of just shoring up the work. If you're not hurting yourself, you can train more. Mm-hmm. If you're not hurting yourself, you can put in more work. More work is clearly the path to becoming better at what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it comes down to all these little things. Focus on correcting the way you move through space. These mo- I call them motor skill drills, by the way, MSD workouts. The motor skill drills are all about refining your talent, getting better at the way you move through space. Don't get lazy, run with your friend, and just let all the crap go all over. All- I see people running like this. I mean, i got to bite my finger when I watch it because it drives <laughs> me crazy. And, and then they got these, you know, you see these uh, neoprene wraps on their knee. Uh-huh. Uh, or, or they got, you know, a bunch of rock tape all over them because they're <laughs> jacked up. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then they try to push through it, and they just push through it, push through it till eventually it takes them out. Mm-hmm. Never occurred to them that it would probably be less expensive to than having to visit the, the PT or, or the, the chiropractor or the, you know, whoever the, the shaman is that's going to help them with their pain if they just worked on correcting the way they move through space. Yeah. Laura, I promise you, if you follow what it is I'm suggesting to you, you're going to see a notable improvement in the way you move. And that is going to start leading you towards more confidence in your pace. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately going to end up being faster. Okay, so uh, there was a couple things else that, that I had that I wanted to make sure I touched on. Okay, so uh, Christina Lopez, this is a girl that I've actually worked with. She, she, she chimed in, and she said, cadence confuses me. What is the right cadence, and does it increase with speed, or should it always be the holy grail of being at 180 strides per minute? Okay, so here's the thing. I'm not suggesting you need to stay at 180 strides per minute. Your cadence should fluctuate relative to terrain. 
If you go up a steep grade, you're going to want to tighten up your cadence and probably turn your legs over more. Mm-hmm. But when, you're, when your cadence gets above 180 beats per minute or 180 strides per minute, it becomes expensive. You know, if you've if ever watched one of the, the, the series of the Fast and Furious where these guys are racing these cars and the guy reaches down and hits that little switch in the dashboard where the nitro kicks mm-hmm. in and he gets yeah. this little shot of energy and then all of a sudden it, it goes away, think of your cadence like that. There's times when you want to hit that nitro switch, but you want to use it sparingly. If okay. you're coming up on the finish line and you've got to beat your friend and your stride is as big as it gets and you're already at 180, the only way you're going to go faster is if you turn your legs over quicker. And you may need to visit that stride frequency or overstride speed frequency on occasion, but I look at 180 strides per minute as home. That's where you're safe. That's really efficient. And because whatever the cadence be, whether it be 150, 160, 180, whatever it is, if you follow it where both legs are doing the same thing, you're going to be in a better place than when you just randomly toss your legs out there and hope it shakes out. Mm-hmm. So the answer is no. You don't have to stick to 180, but you need to marry up with 180 so it becomes something that is typically who you are most of the time. If you're going to run a marathon, you want to try to stay to 180 as closely as possible. Open your stride up. Stay at 180. You'll move faster. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to kick a dead horse a little bit, but I'll have people on my treadmill have the metro, metronome running, I'm controlling the speed. I start them out at four miles per hour, keep them at 180 strides per minute, and it looks like they're jogging in place. So their feet are b- basically right beneath them. It drives them crazy. I'll make them stay that way for five minutes before I move them off of it. And then I'll progressively increase the speed and keep them on the cadence. And then progressively increase the speed and increase the speed, increase the speed, and I will not let them go beyond 180 strides per minute. The only way you can achieve this is if your stride gets longer. It has to open up. And it can only do that one of two ways, either in front of you or behind you. What I want to see happen is that they lead with their knees and they make contact beneath center of mass, and that stride opens up beautifully behind them. Most athletes will drop into this sweet spot, depending on how fit they are and how limber they are, they might, might be like nine miles per hour where all of a sudden they look like they're floating because the stride and their rhythm has just come together in such a harmonious fashion that it becomes really, really cool to watch. And then it gets troubled as we start to get to 10 to 11 to 12 miles per hour, get around five-minute pace, and then you know it, it's getting difficult because their strides opened up as best they can. And the only way they're going to be able to keep up now is if they start to either create some corruptions or they increase their frequency. So I will do drills where I'll encourage them to increase their frequency, but I won't let them do it until I tell them, okay, now. And then what I'll do is I'll jack the speed up to like 16 miles per hour and then have them run as fast as they can until they have to jump off, meaning jump to the outsides and grab the rails. Let them recover and repeat it again and repeat it again. So what I'm showing them is how to react to the finish line pace, how to get up to speed without being corrupted at a really high frequency at a really high stride length. But that's a little yeah. more advanced work. Yeah. Wow. A lot of stuff, right? <laughs> I know. I know. But it's exciting. Are you confused? 
Uh, yeah, but that's a good thing. Well, let me, let me tell you this. When you send me a video and we critique the way you're moving and then you start approaching the work, it's going to come together for you. It's yeah. going to start to make, it'll start to make sense. You're going to hate me for a little while. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's okay because, you know, most people don't like me anyway. You're supposed to hate good coaches and trainers, yeah? That's right. I, yeah, I got plenty of friends, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I get. Oh, I don't, my, yeah. my friends don't pay me. See, and I'm a teacher. It's the same thing, you know. So oh, yeah. If I'm yeah. a good teacher, then a lot of times they hate me. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, incidentally, it's kind of off point, but I love it when a guy tells me or, or a girl tells me, oh, yeah, my trainer, he's such a nice guy. I, mm-hmm. You know, he's... He's such a nice guy. <laughs> you know what? If if you knew the people that I work with daily, they would laugh their butts off. If you mm-hmm. said, well, what do you think of him? Is he a nice guy? And they'd start cracking up because yeah. uh, I, I'm i in their face. I mean, you know, I mean, if they, they blow it, I'm in their face. If there's yeah. corrections that need to be, uh, you know, and I, I tell people this all the time, and I'm going to share it with you. A pat on the back is 14 inches away from a kick in the ass. <laughs> That's my theory with training. I'm going to use that one. <laughs> a pat on the back is 14 inches away from a kick in the ass. Like you, what you need to do is you need to teach people, right? And and I will not let people get away with, with lousy form. They've got to show me good form before we let them out of the gate to do anything that's significant. Their energy yeah. levels are high. They want to go hard. They want to punch themselves out because they're used to that. That comes. There's going to come a day when you get up to some really great intensity and very extensive workouts, but not until you figure out how to run properly. And okay. let's see. Is there anything else I got here? Uh, so just to, just to make sure that I was clear on this, hip instability, I think, is something that is, is very much in line with poor running mechanics. You could do a whole a whole passel of stability drills in the gym, and it will be for naught if you don't do something dynamic. You need to put yourself in the positions that typically would cause the disruptions you're facing and learn to conquer those inefficiencies. Doing okay. static drills, you know, in a fixed position is not going to have much bearing on what happens dynamically. So you try to mirror the work dynamically. And, okay. and keep your feet underneath you when you run. Get the eccentric can, energy. I can do that. Eccentric energy coming out of the ground into your calf and Achilles is going to propel you forward if you get a nice little lean going and you find that energetic response. If your foot lands ahead of you, you can't get that replay from your foot. Okay. We could do this all day, Lori, I swear to I you. Know, I know, I know. I won't. And But listen, <laughs> I... I I'm going to tell you one more time, send me the videos. I was serious about that. When I get I the videos, I'll send you the book, and then I'll schedule okay. a time. We'll, we'll talk on the phone, and I'll, I'll explain to you what to do. I absolutely will send them to you, I promise. All right. Because so I, I need the help. I apologize for confusing you. It's really a tough thing to try to explain through audio. Maybe one day you get to California, and we'll, we'll do it together. Sounds good. I'll, I might take you up on that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to shut the show down. Lori, thank you for coming on. So, listen, you have a great weekend, okay? Okay, you too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay, thanks. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. 
Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.